At Fidelity, value is automatic, starting with the rate you can get on your cash when you open a new retail brokerage account. Learn more at fidelity.com slash trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends who's trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at you, Kramer. And what the heck happened today? The president negotiates a ceasefire in the trade war with China. The averages explode higher in the morning. And then they gradually give up much of their gains. Dow ultimately closing up 117 points. S&P rising 0.77%. Still, by the way, closing at all-time high. And then Nasdaq advancing 1.06%. How is it we could rally so hard, much better than those closes? Those closing figures on generally good news and then lose our momentum. At one point, we were flatlining before advancing at the final hour of the day. I think we got dragged down by the very same force that allowed the averages to rocket higher in the first half of this year. Dow gaining 14%, S&P Pulp voting 17%, and the NASDAQ going up 21%. That was easy. And that force, skepticism. The market is full of skeptics. It's full of bears who sometimes masquerade as bulls. And their doubt is the fuel that lets us go higher. Bull markets thrive on disbelief. The moment everyone believes in the bull, well, the rally's over. Because then there's no one left to buy. Buy, buy, buy! Let me explain. Because today was a pretty good microcosm for how the whole year's been going. First, this weekend, President Trump declared a truce in the trade war with China. And I phrase it that way because it was so one-sided. President Xi didn't seem to give up anything. But even if Trump is willing to ratchet down the tensions, I'm not sure the Chinese are done retaliating. Although the stock market obviously disagrees with me. Many pundits proclaim that nothing was truly resolved by this deal. And the whole thing was a nothing burger of beyond meat proportions. I think that's wrong. Very wrong. The pauses here are real. We learned Trump will be rolling back some of the sanctions on Huawei, the huge Chinese telco company, which means many of Huawei's American suppliers will be back in action. This is huge. Just last week, Micron told us that the Huawei blacklist cost him as much as $200 million in sales in the last quarter alone. And Micron may not have even been the hardest hit. I mean, I think Western Digital, Corvo, Broadcom, Skyworks, they all had gotten pulverized by this blockage of orders to Huawei. Now, if you asked me about White House's attitude toward Huawei going to the summit, I would have told you that Trump administration was committed to putting these guys out of business. They view this company as a stooge of the Chinese government. To the hardliners, the administration Huawei's cheap, high-quality telco equipment is a threat to U.S. technological hegemony. I thought the hardliners were calling the shots. Apparently, it's not the case. Well, we don't know the specifics here that drive Huawei into bankruptcy crowd has clearly lost, although we have some understanding that Huawei is experiencing just a partial reprieve. That was a story that came out this afternoon when I think people like me were saying, hey, man, what a giveaway. Still, that's a major positive for the semiconductor companies that supply them, as well as NVIDIA, which at one point was up eight points, by the way. NVIDIA, which has an acquisition in the, it's held really in the balance by Chinese regulators. I think the chances of this deal did improve dramatically, though, after the Huawei stay of execution. Now, uh, that's pretty important. Uh, is it the end of the trade war? No, no, no. 
But it's absurd to act like the ceasefire on the seven-day front doesn't matter. Only people who don't understand exactly what semis do would think that. At the same time, Trump gave China a stay of execution on the next round of tariffs, which is something I certainly didn't see coming. Many CEOs I speak to thought these tariffs were a done deal. Nope, at least not for the moment. Now, the stock market hates the trade war and loves anything that ratchets down tension with China. But to me, this seems like a bad deal. Think about it. What do we get? Some vague promises that China would make some big purchases from American farmers? I don't even know how that happens, given the Chinese have already started sourcing many crops from other countries. Uh, They're buying soybeans from Brazil now. It isn't that easy to switch back. Still, what drives me nuts is that this market is trying to have it both ways on the trade deal, both negative ways. One group of bears says this deal with China means absolutely nothing. And then another group of bears tells us that the trade truce means the economy is now going to get too strong for the Federal Reserve to cut rates later this month. But you can't have it both ways, people. If the deal doesn't matter, the Fed has all the ammo it needs to cut rates. If the deal does matter, then the economy improves on its own. Yet all day today, we saw sellers coming out of the woodwork, seemingly worried that the Fed will leave rates unchanged now that Trump's trying to work things out with China. I found the inconsistency just infuriating. But you know what? It's good. It's good that Wall Street's skeptical. The averages exploded higher in the first half, not despite the pessimism, but because of it. Stocks climbed the wall, bizarre wall of worry, frankly, that stems from a belief that earnings are going to collapse and the president cares more about crushing China than he cares about helping the stock market. However, those earnings have proven to be far more resilient than the pessimists expected. Lower interest rates have given dividend stocks a second win when it looks like they were flagging. And the president has a bullish habit of changing his stance whenever he sees stocks going down for too long. He loves new highs. He always wants to take credit for them. You got to follow him on Twitter if you're not. Put it all together and you got a situation where every time portfolio managers try to leave, they're sucked back in by an amazingly pumped up S&P 500. They can't afford to sit on the sidelines when these averages are screaming higher. The best example here... <coughs> okay, I came back from Italy with a little cough. Give me a break. How sweet it is. The best example is Apple. At the beginning of the year, this stock got clobbered, plunging to 142 after a negative pre-announcement. Barely see it now, but ooh, remember how bad it was? Um, Apple looked like roadkill, frankly. Yet now the stock has rallied to over 200. It could challenge this year's highs. Getting pretty close, isn't it? What's happened during this period? Well, we've got a widespread perception that Apple's Chinese sales have plummeted. We got a sense that the companies in the corsairs are both the United States and the People's Republic because they do so much business in both countries. But Apple's got a plan to grow its fabulous service business, and that allowed the stock to triumph, even though there are worries galore. <clears throat> Microcosm exactly of this market. Hey, you know what? You see this all over the place. Everybody in the media and the government hates Facebook, right? But users still love them. Or more accurately, they can't quit Instagram. So the numbers keep going up. The news flow on Boeing. There's a good one. It's been horrible. Yet the stock's up nearly 10% for the year. The banks are horrendous. Then the government gives them a green light to raise their dividends and buy back stock. And boom, their shares rebound. Now, I could go on and on, but here's the bottom line. This market just won't quit. 
because there are so many money managers with one foot out the door. Every time something good happens, they need to jump right back at higher prices. And that's the real driving force behind this remarkable rally. We're going to start by taking calls with Frank Franlin. For now, Franklin in Pennsylvania. Franklin! Hey, how's it going, Jim? Um, first and foremost, I would like to thank you for all your experience and advice. I'm a daily viewer. Fairly uh, new investor. Ah, uh, you're terrific. Calling thank you so much. Calling today regarding ticker symbol MDB, MongoDB, Inc. I own a few shares. I'm currently in the green. Um, today they closed out at 147.67 per share. Um, but currently, I've been seeing a downward trend. Uh, I'm just calling simply to ask, should I buy? I Maybe wouldn't. Look, it stocks up 76%. For the, you know, we spoke to them two weeks ago. I don't know about you. I thought it was a fabulous story. I, mean, I, thought, I said, wow, this one's much better than I thought. MongoDB, it is okay with me. All right, I need to go to Alex in Utah. Alex. Hi, Jim. Alex. How are you? All right, I just have a question. I just wanted to hear your thoughts about a possible M&A deal of Amazon and FedEx, especially since FedEx stocks has uh, been significantly devalued as of lately. Well, and I'm going to have to go. First of all, possible? we don't recommend stocks on a takeout business in this show. But second, I mean, there's no love lost there. Uh, Fred Smith had some interesting to say, by the way, on the conference call. I mean, he's pulling away from Amazon. Not that it was very big in Amazon at all. Uh, I think that you own FedEx because it's darn cheap and well run and has come down too far too fast. I like it. Not for takeover, but because it's good. Bill in New York. Bill. Hey. Hey, Dr. Kramer. This is Bill from Marlboro, New York. Good to have you on the show. I have a question. Why are people, mutual funds, et cetera, still buying Pacific Gas and Electric stock when the company has filed for bankruptcy, isn't paying any dividends, and is being sued for 20 to $30 billion because their equipment caused many of these devastating multi-year California fires? Thanks, and keep up the great work. I think that what's happened. Thank you. I think that what's happened here is that people are in disbelief that there really could be anything wrong. I share the skepticism with you. Uh, mutual funds that are buying here. I mean, maybe they know something. Maybe there's sources in government for heaven's sake. It's too risky for this guy. Anyway, today is representative this entire darn year. Just when people think this market's going lower, it soars. All made money tonight. The SP 500 just had its best first half in two decades. Then I'm going over the winners to tell you what the pattern is and why I think it can continue. Then I'm getting real on the real, real IPO. And the G20 summit has come and gone, but trade noise remains. I'm talking to the CEO of a company that can offer real insight on how the U.S. economy is faring. Do not miss my sit down with Marty Musi from Paychex. And stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. At Fidelity, we work to get you a better price for every trade. See how much we saved investors last year at fidelity.com slash price improvement. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. Now that the first half of the year is over and we've had an incredible run. 
best in ages. It's worth asking how much of this move was because maybe we never should have been down so much in the first place. You know what happened late last year. And and how much of this is the real deal? In other words, what does this rally really signify? Given the incredible uncertainties and erratic Fed, trade tensions, slowing retail sales, genuine earnings disappointments, the rally in the first half of the year really did defy uh, all of the pessimistic expectations. I want you to understand what drove this move, which is why tonight we're drilling down on the five best performing stocks in both the Dow Jones Industrial Average and because the Dow Jones Average is a little bit atavistic. Of course, we're going to focus on the S&P 500. We've got to draw some conclusions about this market that could be helpful for the second half. Let's take them down. Biggest winner in the Dow? Microsoft. Mr. Softy up nearly 32% in the first half. Now, how the heck did that happen? Simple. Microsoft's become the one uncontroversial large cap tech stock. A trillion dollar nobody that's living in peace with regulators all over the globe. Ironic? Think about it like this. Microsoft already had its antitrust reckoning 18 years ago. The once despised tech kingpin has become innocuous under the leadership of the quiet, earnest Satya Nadella. Nobody's calling to break up Microsoft like they are with Amazon, Google, and Facebook. It's the good guy. Can the stock keep roaring? Tough call. Microsoft's earnings haven't been rising nearly as fast as its share price. That means much of the recent move was called, let's say, multiple expansion. That's money managers paying more for the same set of earnings expectations. That said, Microsoft's got it all. I mean, Azure, it's got that tremendous cloud business. It's got fantastic business all over the globe. You know what? Stick with it. Second and third best performers in the Dow are two credit card companies, Visa and American Express, up 31 and 29% respectively. They're both extremely well run, both terrific plays on the transition from paper money to plastic, which is still going on. There's just one thing that can stop them. If the banks themselves come back in style in the Wall Street fashion show, as they did today after those stress tests that were released last week. And maybe then the demand for financial technology stocks will dry up as money flows back into the much cheaper regular financials. Now, I don't think it's very likely, but it's certainly a possibility. Now, Market Express definitely has the cheaper stock of, uh, between Visa and Market Express. I think it's a better buy here. While the company had a good quarter, there's also some multiple expansion at work here, fueled by the fintech bull market. If you really want a credit card stock that's expensive but growing fast, I would go with Ma. That's MasterCard, as it's got the best runway for growth. Number four, Disney. Up 27%, one of the most unbelievable moves I've ever seen in my career. You almost never see a not-so-hot stock explode higher after the company holds a long-awaited analyst meeting. But that's exactly what happened here. Before CEO Bob Iger traced out his vision for Disney's future through 2024, led by a streaming video service, Disney Plus, and a slate of movies that are almost guaranteed to be blockbusters three quarters of the year, investors only focused on ESPN, specifically how ESPN was losing subscribers thanks to cord cutting. Hey, now that's an asterisk. Like the genie in Aladdin, Iger's done the impossible. He's convinced money managers that the Disney franchise is so strong, it's worth holding on to the stock through the next few years for the big payoff in 2024, even though building out the streaming business will cost them a fortune. I think Iger's being conservative, though. Disney has terrific programming, which is why I'm betting Disney Plus will start breaking even earlier, maybe in 2022, maybe turn a profit in 2023. Now, if you're willing to, be, to focus on those out years, then this remains a fantastic story. But near term, patience is required. Fifth best performer in the Dow, Cisco. 
CSCO kind, up 26%. Now, under the leadership of Chuck Robbins, Cisco has transitioned from a networking hardware play that was slow growing into a more diversified, faster growing business that has a lot of software and cybersecurity exposure. Largest cybersecurity company in the world, by the way, just buried within the company. The skeptics are still surprisingly thick on the ground. Uh, which is one of the reasons why the stock's so cheap. Even though Cisco's in great shape, and it's sitting on, well, not as big a mountain of cash as it used to have, but still a mountain, I think it's got more room to run. Don't forget, Robin sold the last round of tariffs coming and skedaddled out of China ahead of time. No estimate cuts there. If the new date trade detone holds, maybe that doesn't matter. But if this deal goes off, off the rails, as so many people obviously thought through much of the day, Cisco will be fine. All right, how about the top five winners in the S&P 500? Many of these look like Cisco. There are stories where management made good decisions that are now paying off. Now, the best performer in the S&P 500 during the first half was Cody, cosmetics company. But given that Cody's stock just imploded today and they announced a huge write-down, I'm going I'm to asterisk that one, okay? Number two, Xerox, which is very much a never-should-have-been-down so much in the fourth quarter name. I put that one aside, too, because I want to help you make some money, not just be historical. For our purposes, the S&P's best performer was Chipotle, even if it was really uh, number three. Up 69% for the first half. Chipotle's a spectacular turnaround story, led by the great Brian Nickel, formerly of Taco Bell. Nickel has breathed new life in the franchise, helping recover from the health scares, although it doesn't hurt that Americans have short memories for mass incidents of food poisoning. By the way, technologically, he is so superior to the old guys. Wow. Second, there's AMD, up 64%. Now, you probably heard me rave so much about CEO Lisa Sue that you're sick of it. Don't turn the channel. What she's done here is nothing short of amazing. After spending 30 years playing second banana to Intel, AMD's now got some of the best chips for the PC, for game, for the data center. In fact, AMD's become more reliable than Intel. Holy cow, I just said it. I think it might be having the best quarter of all the semiconductor stocks, too. It's a buy. Number three is an odd duck, Cadence Design, up 62%. This company's always been a force in the semiconductor design business, but, I mean, lately it's become the premier subscription-based intelligent systems designer. Reminds me of Autodesk, by the way, which was up big today. I think this stock could have more upside. I remember from the old days, you used to have a huge stake in it when I was a hedge fund manager. The fourth best performer in the S&P, when we move aside to Cody and the Xerox, is MSCI, run by the great Henry Fernandez. It's up nearly 62%. This is one of my favorite companies. If you want to invest in emerging markets, MSCI is the keeper of the indices and all the data and the analytics tools you need. And growth-seeking portfolio managers love emerging markets, even though they're incredibly risky. And that's why MSCI has become the star of the fintech space. More room to run. Finally, here's a weird one. Hess, up 57%. To me, it feels like there's hot money coming into this oil stock. Hey, maybe they're speculating that Hess could be a takeover target like Anna Darko now that Chevron's looking for something. I think that's very unlikely, though. If you own Hess, maybe you want to ring the register. Bottom line, when I look at the top five best performers in the Dow and the S&P, I see a good group of stocks, most of which have more room to run. As we've seen over and over this year, stocks that are in motion tend to stay in motion, especially when they're going higher. Maybe they get knocked down by big picture worries, by sell programs. But if you got a quality story like a lot of these, the odds are good. The stock's going to get right back on track. Stay with Kramer. While we were away last week, the IPO market kept chugging along with yet another smoking hot deal. I'm talking about the real, real. That's real, R-E-A-L, for you home gamers. The online consignment store for luxury goods that came public with a bang on Friday. 
The deal price is 20 bucks, a buck, a buck above the proposed price range. And then the stock immediately opened at $28. 40% gain right out of the gate. All aboard! Before closing at $28.90. Buyers had good reason. This is an intriguing story with a very fast growth rate. And at a time when the department stores are being eaten alive, the real real could be poised to make a killing. But we hate to chase. And this thing ran up a lot on Friday. Fortunately, today, the stock pulled back and it sank uh, to, uh, more than two bucks or eight percent. You know what? I got to wonder if it's cooled down enough to start owning because this is a concept. All right. Maybe I'm biased. Many of my friends use it uh, more than even uh, rent the runway. This has a powerful concept that I think the department stores should have adopted ahead of them. All right. So let's get to know this IPO. First, you need to understand how this company really works. The real real operates in a very interesting niche that reminds me of a company you may have seen on air, StockX. That's that red-hot digital platform for reselling fancy old sneakers, Nikes. Remember that? We had them on. StockX is privately held, but its business is booming because there's a huge market for used luxury goods. That's where the real real comes in. This is an online consignment shop, a store that helps people sell their used stuff. One that's specifically designed to handle luxury apparel brands, as well as watches, jewelry, home goods, even art. The real real isn't just a platform, though. They also authenticate everything that comes their way, meaning you're much less likely to be suckered into buying fakes. Oh, I love this concept. There's tons of great high-end clothing and accessories that are just sitting in people's closets and bureaus. Maybe it doesn't fit you anymore. Maybe your tastes have changed. If they're a good way to sell the stuff for what it's worth, one that doesn't require a lot of hassle, then I think people would take advantage of it. And that's exactly what we're seeing with The Real Real. For the last eight years, this company has been building up a loyal base of both sellers and buyers. They're going up against a fragmented market that's tough to find and full of counterfeits. By making it easy to sell your high-end clothes and accessories on consignment, and then by authenticating the merchandise, they're pulling in all kinds of people who wouldn't normally buy or sell this stuff. Plus, the people who use Real Real to sell their old stuff very often turn into buyers of other people's stuff. The company describes it as a flywheel effect. I couldn't uh, agree more. This thing has a lot of people buzzing about it. Think about it. Do you really want to go to a brick-and-mortar consignment store and spend ages haggling with them? Do you want to sell this stuff online via an auction site like eBay? Either way, you got to admit, it's a... The house of pain. Yes, a pain in the neck. Then from the consumer side, do you really want to shop at a brick-and-mortar consignment store? The problem with shopping for used clothing, especially high-end clothing, is that it's a crapshoot. Maybe the place you're going to has fabulous selection. Or maybe it's all garbage. You can't really tell until you've gone through everything. I know lots of people enjoy this kind of treasure hunt shopping experience. I used to, but it's stressful. It's exhausting, especially if you don't find any treasure. The real real solves all these problems. Limited selection of used merchandise. The company has more than 180 luxury managers across over 40 major metropolitan areas who search for people who might be willing to sell their luxury goods on consignment. They now built a terrific pipeline as 80% of the real, real gross merchandise value came from repeat sellers. The company will come to your home for a consultation or you can drop your stuff off at one of their local uh, one of their locations. They have 11 consignment offices and three retail stores in New York and L.A. Or you can just ship it to them straight to them for free. Once they get their hands on your stuff, the real, real authenticates it. They write the description, they take the photos, they handle all the logistics, everything you'd have to do yourself if you tried to sell a used jacket on eBay. And their consigners get good deals. On average, their commission comes to 65% of the selling price. 
From the perspective of potential buyers, you don't need to deal with a treasure hunt because the real real brings all this fancy merchandise together from all over the country. They curate it on their website so you see the best stuff. And after eight years, they've gotten very good at this. Last year, 80% of their products on the real real site sold within 90 days of being listed. And they had a 96% sell-through ratio. So how about the financials? Okay, last year the company delivered 55% revenue growth. And while that growth slowed to 49% in the first quarter of 2019, that's still a number that most retailers would kill for. Can you imagine a department store getting those numbers? Holy cow. Active buyers and total orders both increased by 40% in the first quarter. That is, however, as there often is, a fly in the ointment. Because the real real is in growth mode, the company is a long way from turning a profit. Normally, that wouldn't bother me much for newly minted, come on, newly minted IPO, so much potential. The problem is that real real's margins are moving in the wrong direction. They didn't improve very much last year. And in the first quarter of 2019, they were actually down substantially. The gross margin, what they make on the cost of goods sold, declined by 470 basis points to 61.2%. Still high, but not what I wanted. Beyond the numbers, you need to know that this company has real competition. eBay's coming at them with a similar service, eBay Authenticate. And there's another privately held company in the same business, Poshmark, that's planning to go public later this year. Worse, Poshmark and eBay Authenticate both take a, uh, they take a smaller cut, more like 20% versus 30% for the real real. I think there's enough room for multiple players here, but competition, it can be devastating for your margins, and that's what I'm worried about anyway. I mean, it, this could end up being like Amazon's attempt to move in on Etsy in the handmade goods market, where the smaller, more specialized player ultimately triumphed without breaking a sweat. Now, we know that when Elliott Management, the high-profile activist hedge fund, started pushing eBay's management for change earlier this year, they cited the real real as a company that was thriving because eBay had taken its eye off the ball. I agree. I said the same thing this morning to David Faber when we talked about this. Now that Elliott's made peace, you have to wonder if eBay will become a more focused competitor. It's certainly possible eBay's a pretty good company. The other big concern, the real real CEO, Julie Wainwright, she was previously the CEO of Pets.com which, of course, has become the poster child for the excesses of the dot-com bubble. I think it's a cheap shot to talk talk about it. But then again, I did bring it up. The business models aren't really comparable. And Wainwright's built the real real into a formidable outfit. But I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't mention it. And people would say, he's glossing over that. I think she's really good. So we've got an intriguing growth story with some hair on it. What, what do we do? What do we do? Okay, if we assume the company can keep growing at its current growth rate, a generous assumption, that means the stock is trading at roughly seven times this year's sales estimates. Seven times sales for a company of 49% revenue growth, it's a lot. If you look at something like Revolve Group, which we just talked about a couple weeks ago, another online fashion play recently came public, that trades at less than four times this year's sales. Of course, the real real is roughly twice the growth rate. But on the other hand, it's unprofitable. While Revolve is making money, remember we like that Revolve deal. Put it all together, and I think it's too pricier. Uh, maybe even after today's pullback, although what I'd want to say to just go buy it. Here's the bottom line. Despite its flaws, I think Real Real has a lot going for it. And there's absolutely a price where the stock's worth owning. It's just not this one. I mean, right now it's at 26 and change. You got my blessing to buy it if it pulls back to 22.50 or less. Hey, things can happen. And if it doesn't, gotta just say you missed it. How about we go to Rob in California? Rob! Hey, Jim. Uh, calling you. Uh to ask about a particular stock, I'm a technician that uh, that believes the chart is worth a thousand words. All right. And uh, calling about Nike, uh, I bought Nike last year and used Foot Locker as a proxy um, and watched Foot Locker's uh, stock soar. 
And then shortly thereafter, watched Nike soar from 67 to around 85 and bought some calls at around 67, okay. sold at around 85. Um, and I'm looking at the chart today, and I'm seeing two things that I'm not really liking. One is a double top. Right. And I see that. The other is a, and the other is that the 50-day moving average uh, just recently crossed below the 100-day moving average, which tells me there's, there could be some selling pressure in the near term. I'm wondering if you would buy it now and if you think it might pull back to 80 um, before you would buy again. Well, I think it moved up today because of trade talk and the uh, insistence that it's somehow levered only to China. They have great relationship with China. I'd like to see it go back to 80, 82 before I buy it. I understand your chart work. We talk about charts on Tuesday. I was surprised it went up this much. I'm not a buyer at this level. Needs to be lower. I agree with you. Ashwin in California. Ashwin. Yep. Hey, Jim. Thanks for your insights. Okay. Uh, I had a quick question about Lululemon. Yes. Uh, Athletica. Yeah. Uh, I got got in uh, around uh, 169, 170 right before their earnings. Uh, still hanging on to them. Uh, I saw a few analysts uh, who have downgraded them from a buy to a hold, uh, and some uh, some are underperform. I don't know why. Uh, their numbers look good. Um, they are costly. Expensive, but they're still looking good. Uh, fundamentals look good. Right. Uh, what are your thoughts Ashwin, on that? Ashwin, I like the-, the stock right here. I like the stock to go to 200. They have a, a series of unbelievable quarters. They have amazing management. A downgrade? I got 100 stocks I downgrade before I would downgrade Lululemon. I'm sticking with it. All right, let me keep it real. Real. The new IPO has a lot going for it, but if these prices, and eh, I'm not having trouble. Wait for a pullback. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with the CEO of Paychex to get a read on the job market and his stock. And why can't the oil stocks catch a serious bid? I'm investigating. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. As far as Wall Street's concerned, the trade they taunt with China is good news, as long as it sticks. But the trade war was never this market's only problem. Remember, last month we got a tepid employment report. So what should we expect when the Labor Department releases its next set of non-farm payroll numbers this Friday? Look, if you want to get a read on the job market, you need to check in with with payroll processors. I'm talking about companies like Paychex. That's the second largest payroll processor in America, one that focuses on small and medium-sized businesses. When Paychex reported last week, the earnings were a little light, according to some analysts, and investors might not have been that thrilled with management's outlook. The stock got hammered on the news, but since then, it's been bouncing back. What's it mean? Let's take a closer look with Marty Busey. He's the president and CEO of Paychex. Get a better sense of how his company's doing and also how the job market's doing. Mr. Musi, welcome back to Man Money. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be here. All right, Marty, I, I had the good fortune of being away when you reported because I got to see how the stock's bouncing back, not how some people sold it down. I just want to go over a little housekeeping. It seemed like that your numbers were a little misunderstood not because you were uh, opaque, but because the analysts didn't seem to understand you were trying to explain what your numbers really look like with or without this insurance component. Just basically tell people, I think, that business was pretty darn good, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. We had a solid year. 12% revenue growth got us up to $3.8 billion in revenue and uh, solid operating margin and adjusted diluted earnings per share of 11%. 
I mean, we felt very strong. We did exactly what, uh, what actually what the expectations were for most uh, that were out there. So I think we had a very solid fiscal year, good solid fourth quarter that's starting us right off good this year. It also seems that if you keep uh, your word about what you said, and you've always been a man of the world on this show, you're talking about 11 to 14 percent in the second half as you anniversary of this acquisition, which would actually be an acceleration from what you've been doing. Yeah, this uh, particularly uh, when we yeah we got out of the excel- the uh, we will accelerate and we feel really strongly about the revenue growth, particularly on the HR uh, side. You know that's what's been growing the fastest, double digit growth. Even without Oasis, the acquisition that we completed, uh, we will have double digit growth. We did have double digit growth, and we think we'll continue to have that in our client employees that we add. We're at a, about a million five worksite employees that we now serve. And that's been great growth, and that's more than anyone else serves across our HR services. I also thought, um, unfortunately, you flagged the retirement crisis. No one talks about it. A quarter of Americans have no retirement savings. Sounds like what you're offering could increase the number of people who put money away. Well, we think so. And one of the things that's been a great help is the mobility app that we offer through Paychex Flex. That app now allows uh, the client's employees to sign up for the retirement with basically four clicks on their mobile app. So it doesn't have to be all the paperwork that it used to be. And we're already seeing participation rates move up for those participating in the plans that the client has. That helps them be compliant. That helps uh, retain that that plan as well. Now, Marty, I wasn't sure. Uh, You did talk about how tight employment has, you think, uh, kept small, medium-sized business creation, particularly small business, a little bit more subdued than you had expected. But you dismissed a bit that it might be because of minimum wage. I was thinking that perhaps, because you said that longer hours, that people are reluctant to hire new people because they're, or, or start a new business because of the minimum wage. Which is it really, the minimum wage, or is it the difficulty to find employees? Because my old friend Larry Kudlow would say, Jim, the minimum wage is discouraging new business, and that's what Paychex is looking at. Well, I think it's, it is a little bit of both, Jim. I think those existing clients, small businesses, are having a difficult time with those minimum wage increases that are going into effect, and they're trying to get more hours out of the current employees and productivity, but that's difficult. But I think the overall issue for small business job growth is definitely that there's a shortage of employees and that small businesses have a more difficult time hiring because they don't quite have the flexibility and the recruiting power and the flexibility of work, work hours that new hires uh, really want these days. So do you think that that's going to mean that there will be year over year a slowing in employment? Uh, because in many ways, it's really kind of a high quality problem when you think about it. It is, you know, when you've got so much work, uh, but you can't find the workers. I definitely think it will slow down a little bit on the on the growth. We're still going to have growth in small business hiring, but it is definitely slowing down a bit because it is difficult for small businesses to find and attract and hire the right people. Meanwhile, there were analysts again who were focused on the idea that the Fed might uh, might cut and therefore they would be bad for you. Today was a day that people felt, well, hold it, maybe uh, the Fed won't cut and your numbers go up. I look at the actual delta. It's not as great as this PEO business that's growing like mad. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it, that, that's a small piece. We went with low rates for a long time. Uh, it certainly has been some wind in our back to have rates go up on the float, as you know, $4 billion in float that we earn interest on. 
Uh, but it's the growth in the, in the fundamental business, the HR component of the business, the PEO business, that is showing double-digit growth last year and this year uh, as we go into the new fiscal year here this month. So we're feeling very strong. The need for HR support at the small and mid-sized business level has never been greater with the comp- complexities of regulation. Well, then once again, I just want to reiterate, you, are, you did not keep your outlook the same. You increased your outlook for the second half. And those who felt that you were tepid in your view of the future, I think they missed the mark. I do, too. I think they misread it. I think we came out very strong with the growth in the revenue we expect this fiscal year. Uh, And we feel very strongly about the HR growth in the business as well. And we delivered on the results that we expected uh, in the previous fiscal year that we just closed. So uh, and we increased the dividend 11 percent just back in May. And we have one of the highest dividend yields in the business. So I feel like the fundamental results are there financially and the uh, looking for exceptional returns for our shareholders as well. Well, I could not agree more. I'm glad I was able to get you today so we could recommend it with the idea that you very rarely get a discount paychecks. This is the time. Thank you so much, Marty Musi. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Marty Musi is the president and CEO of Paychecks. We've been recommending this stock literally for 55 points. And I reiterate that it's a great buy. And money's back here. It is time! It's time for the light milk! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Time for the lightning round! Let's start with Scott, New Jersey. Scott! How you doing, Jim? I am doing well, Scott. How are you? Good, 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 good. My question for you is Xilinx. I have 11.5% gain in under a week. I say ka-ching, ka-ching. Here's one half of it, at least. Look, there's conflicting reports about what the story with Huawei is. This company makes base station for China, and therefore I think it may not be part of the amnesty, so I don't want to get too out of control. I say don't go. Let's go to Zach in California. Zach! Yes, Mr. Kramer. You had the CEO of Air Environment on your show a month ago, and he said how well they were going to do how well they were to perform. They have not performed well at no, all. No, they this haven't. The Bears have been sale. winning on this one. Uh, I have to tell you that there's a big move against these defense stocks, too. You know, I had L3 this morning with Harris, that merger. That stock got close. The new stock got clocked. I, we got to stay away. I mean, I love that Bob Wyatt back. But, boy, that thing acts badly. Let's go to Tom in Kentucky. Tom. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. From Kentucky PBN, the second time, long time. There you go. Intel and railroad stocks after the G20 summit. Why own Intel when you can own AMD? That's the one to buy. Hey, let's go to Sandy in New York. Sandy! Hi, Jim. How are you? We love you. We watch you every morning and every night. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I, I can be mesmerizing. Some people feel that way. Thank you. I think Yeti was a buy in the 20s, buy in the teens, and buy right here. And I think that sell-off from the 30s, well, well let's just say we're going to revisit that level. Yeti makes unbelievable equipment. I'm, I'm surprised it's actually public. I'm surprised someone hasn't bought them. Let's go to Avi in Florida. Avi! Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Avi. Curious to hear your thoughts on the Chinese electric car company, Neo. Do you think my, they have a future? My thoughts are 
sell, 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 sell. All sell. right, it's a two bucks. I mean, you know what? Maybe uh, it makes a comeback. Hey, I would sell it at three, sell it at four. It has been disappointing. Let's go to Bernie in Texas. Bernie. Yes, sir. On June 3rd, you commented that you were not pleased with the quarter reported by Aramark and would not purchase the stock. Since that time, it dropped, but it popped up again it as, it the two, uh, as it approached the 200-day uh, moving average. Uh, look, this what stock, is your it did not today? have a good quarter. Uh, I was concerned. And then it came right back. And frankly, uh, good for them. But uh, it was difficult to try to figure out why, and it's still difficult to figure out why. Let's go. I love them on the show, though. I love that. Let's go to Marcus in Pennsylvania. Marcus. Yes, sir. Big fan of your show. Thanks for your wisdom and the way you teach us things. Thank I was you. wondering about Brookfield Asset Management, please. They are such smart guys. I'm never getting in the way of smart guys. They bought Genesee, Wyoming for, I think, a very good price. I got to tell you, I like them. It's been doing nothing lately, but I like them. And that, ladies and good of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Why can't the darn oil stocks catch a break? On a day where we had all sorts of good news for the oil market, the trade truce with China that could potentially breathe new life in the global economy and boost demand, while Russia and Saudi Arabia just reached a deal to limit their output, reducing supply. Once again, the price of crude rallied. Yet the oil stocks lag behind the averages again today. Some of them even went down. We do have Iran as a wild card, but anything that makes a war with Iran more likely should send the price of oil higher, not lower. So what's wrong with the oil stocks? Well, it's simple. We're producing too much crude in this country for prices to stay up for very long. Right now, it's at 59, 59 bucks a barrel, okay? And at 59, producers are going to keep drilling while selling oil futures, putting pressure on prices and locking in profits, even if it slows growth. In a way, the American oil industry is a, it's a victim of its own success. We found so much Texas tea that the United States now keeps a lid on the price of crude. Forget OPEC, the petroleum exporting states you should be caring about. Well, come on, here they are. California, North Dakota, Oklahoma, California, Colorado. California in there a couple times, Uh, New Mexico, Louisiana, and, of course, Texas. Okay. Uh, By itself, the Lone Star State is the third largest oil producer on Earth, behind only Russia and Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm not even including the Nat Gas states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia. What am I, like in elementary school? You, You know what I'm talking about. A lot of investors refuse to believe that we're awash in oil. But every time people start buying these stocks, the smart money surfaces and knocks them right back down. Take ExxonMobil. Hey, the largest, right? At 4.45 a.m. today, yeah, I'm back to my old sleeping habits, Exxon was trading up a buck seventy-five. It looked like the stock would have a great day. But later, Exxon opened up just 50 cents, and it ultimately closed down 7 cents. That's incredible. If you bought the oils this morning, uh-uh, you got fleeced. Don't keep making the same mistake, people. The price of crude can go up. But it probably can't stay up, which is why the sellers always seem to overwhelm the buyers in the oil stocks. And the sellers are right. Look, in the last five years, America has increased its oil production by nearly 50 percent to about 12.1 million barrels a day. According to Scott Sheffield, the CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, over the next five years, we could reach 17 million barrels a day, maybe more. We had Sheffield on the show a little over a month ago, and his predictions terrified me because when we own some oil stocks for the Chapel Trust that have really been duds, if Sheffield's right, they're going to keep being duds. Fortunately for members of the ActionLordsPlus.com club, the trust also owned Anadarko before Chevron and Occidental both offered to buy it. But the oil stocks we've owned have been a disaster. 
Let's go back to the 12 million barrels a, a day of domestic production, heading to 17. The problem is there's only so much demand for oil. And governments around the world are trying to cut back on that demand because they're worried about global warming. And that's a recipe for lower prices. And our technology keeps getting better and better. In the U.S., our rig count has actually come down year over year, yet our total production might increase by a million barrels a day this year. At the same time, natural gas, it's practically worthless. So the oil, all the drilling money flows right into oil. We have these massive conservation efforts. Electricity use is down 7% year over year. And that's in part because we're using more efficient light bulbs. That combined with the massive glut of natural gas has crushed prices. Put it all together, and it's very hard to justify owning the oil stocks here. No wonder the oil patch can't get out of its own way, even on a terrific update for the price of crude and a seemingly unified and largely irrelevant OPEC bent on trying to keep prices higher. Stick with Kramer. Tomorrow. Kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Do you know that there are a lot of millennial money managers? No. I'm not kidding. And they hate plastic with a passion. They think plastic's coal. Coal! And it's not King Coal, it's Pawn Coal. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. has taught us one thing. It's okay to be skeptical, but not too skeptical, because then you might miss one unbelievable move like we had in the first half, which was truly incredible. Did you sell your Microsoft before you should have? Did you sell your Chipotle? Well, now you've learned. What happened is people came right back to buy them. This market can still go higher. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. At Fidelity, online U.S. stock and ETF trades are commission-free. $0 commission for online retail Fidelity account U.S. equity and ETF trades. Sell order assessment fee in some account types and securities excluded. See Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC.